Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the debut episode of Talk Wordy to Me. For those who are not familiar with my work, my name is Jordana Levine. And I'm an author, journalist, and podcaster. I've written three nonfiction books, and in 2022, I'm sitting down to write my very first fiction, which, truth be told, was kind of the reason I started this podcast series. You know, writing a fiction book is so very different to the personal development memoir style books that I've written in the past, and I kind of wanted to be able to pick the brains of Australia's best-selling authors. But also, I am a massive bookworm and I love talking about books. And over the years, I've joined a few book clubs and I don't know, they either begin to feel like an English extension comprehension class that I need to do my homework for before I arrive, or people just stop showing up after, you know, book two or book three. So I don't know if that's just my experience. I kind of feel like it's probably yours too. Know that you can come to this podcast and hear all about your favorite books and pick up a few good book recommendations too. I'm going to be talking to best-selling authors of both fiction and nonfiction about the latest book of theirs to hit bookshelves, but also find out the story behind the story. Dig into what their writing process is like because I'm self-indulgent and I kind of want to know but also most importantly, what they're reading, because all we really want is a good book recommendation, right? I'm also going to catch up with some friends and ask them what their favorite book of all time is, because I think there are a bunch of books out there that we've heard people rave about in the past and we'll say we'll read, and then we kind of never really do. So this is a fun way to hear someone get excited about a book that they love and see if it ignites some excitement within you too. Then every Friday, a mini episode of the podcast will drop where I give you some fun book recommendations to add to your summer reading list. This week, I'm sharing my top three thrillers that all have an OMG, I didn't see that coming kind of twist. In this first episode, I'm talking wordy with best-selling author Christian White. Christian burst onto the scene in 2017 with his debut novel, The Nowhere Child, which became Australia's best-selling debut novel ever. Crazy, huh? He's also the author of The Wife and the Widow and his most recent book, which we're going to dive into today, Wild Place. I'm going to read you the back cover blurb of Wild Place to whet your wordy appetite. In the summer of 1989, a local teen goes missing from the idyllic Australian suburb of Camp Hill. As rumours of satanic rituals swirl, schoolteacher Tom Witter becomes convinced he holds the key to the disappearance. When the police won't listen, he takes matters into his own hands with the help of the missing girl's father and a local neighbourhood watch group. But as dark secrets are revealed and consequences to past actions are faced, Tom learns that the only way out of the darkness is to walk deeper into it. 
Wild Place peels back the layers of suburbia, exposing what's hidden underneath, guilt, desperation, violence, and attempts to answer the question, why do good people do bad things? From the international best-selling author Christian White, Wild Place is a white-knuckle descent into a street near you. I've read it. It is fantastic. And I'm not just saying that because Christian's my first guest, but it is a really good read. I couldn't put it down. But Christian's accolades don't just stop there. He also co-wrote the hit Netflix miniseries, Clickbait, which you've likely seen. It was released um, in August 2021. It went straight to number one in 41 countries. Crazy. There are so many juicy takeaways from this conversation with Christian. We discuss everything from starting your writing career in your mid-30s, the crazy jobs one does when pursuing their dreams, what it's like to be involved in a publishing bidding war, why you might like to consider entering writing competitions if you're an aspiring writer. I know I'm certainly going to start entering them after our conversation. How to write a good twist because Christian writes a bloody good one. And we look at some of the themes in his latest book, Wild Place. And there's so, so, so much more to this conversation. Christian honestly was brilliant talent for the first episode of Talk Wordy to Me. I hope you enjoy this chat with him as much as I did. And we kick off with Christian telling us his self-proclaimed most boring but vital piece of advice for writers. I always come back to this really super boring advice, which is, you know, you've got to read a lot. Uh, you know, you've got to write a lot, but you've, you've got to be reading. And it, it's so boring, but it's so true. I think the more you read, um, the better writer you are. And I think some of sometimes you read a book that's so amazing and you want to strive for something like that. Other times you read a book that it's just terrible and you think, well, I can do better than that. You know, so I think it's, <laughs> I think it's important to read a broad, a broad range. If that book got published, I'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, when you're deep in the writing process, ca- can you read at those times or do you find it difficult to read someone else's voice and tone when you're trying to stick to your own? It's really specific circumstances. So if I'm generally I'll write in uh, past tense and third person and I have to read books in past tense, third person, otherwise it kind of, it just messes up. It just messes up my inner rhythm or something. You lock into this mode. And if it, if it is third person or first person, well, for me anyway, if I read something that's that's different, I I will start writing I instead of, you know, he or she. And it's a real, um, I don't know if every author has that problem, but I'm, I've got really strict rules. And I also try to, I either try to read in the same genre that I write in, which is crime thriller, or just something way outside it. And, you know, I feel like, um, you know, one of my one of my all time favorite writers is Haruki Murakami, and what I do, I mean, I could never do anything as good as he does. But what I do is so different and so removed uh, compared to his stuff that I I can read any style if it's something like that. If it's so far removed, yeah, that's okay. But it's like that real. Um, if it's in the genre thriller, it's always yeah, third person past tense. <laughs> well, I do, I do want to dive into the genre thriller because you do do it so so well but before we do I want to ask you before you were Christian White best-selling author who were you before that I often think you know even as a writer when I'm reading a book I just assume they were born a writer that was it they've always been that <laughs> yeah but there's always those jobs that happen before we get our bestseller so what were you doing well yeah so, so I've only actually been writing full-time since 2017 so it's not not a very you know my career started then really, but for the 10, 15, 16, 17 years before that, 
I was trying to be a writer. Um, mm. I decided very early on uh, in high school, I decided I was going to be, I actually decided I was going to be a writer by 25. I thought, oh yeah, that's that's oh that's the perfect age. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, and and I was actually thirty seven when I when I first when Nowhere Child came out when I got my first publishing deal. So you can kind of <laughs> imagine the mental gymnastics I had to go through between you know not getting published in twenty five and waiting it until thirty seven uh, to, to sort of keep going. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of like so many writers before they get published. Uh, I worked dozens of ridiculous odd jobs um I was I picked apples for a while I worked in a bottle shop for years I printed t-shirts I worked for coca-cola on the um you know you get a bottle of coke and on the side of the bottle there's a free call number and people call that number if they want to yell at someone and I was the person getting yelled at uh and I worked my my most notorious uh my most, most notorious sort of casual job was I was a film and a video editor for an adult film company so I I edited porn I was actually yeah an early draft of what would become the nowhere child I just would writing in the edit suite you know because I I, I would always try to find times on all my jobs to to sort of write you know when you when you're working full-time and trying to support this writing habit it you know it's like a drug habit and you have to just find time and I would write on the weekends and at nights and early in the morning but often I'd just write at work when I could and yeah, yeah when I was when I was editing porn in this weird dimly lit little edit suite I did a lot of uh the first draft first draft of the Noah Child. <laughs> I cannot let you skip over that we need to talk about it how did you end up there? I uh, had a friend who was working there and he said, oh, we're hiring, you know, they're hiring an editor. Um, so I went to the Seek job, uh, Seek, you know, the Seek ad, and it was, I wish I had have kept it because it was, it was worded in the most hilarious way. It was sort of, it didn't hide the fact that it was for an adult film company, but it it, it sort of tried to formalise it. And, um, you know, so I thought, oh, my God. And so I, I lied on my resume. I'd never edited anything. I lied on my resume, went along for an interview. You know, it was the weirdest thing because it's also – uh, they, they they did adult DVDs. This wasn't that long ago. So DVDs, people were still buying porn on DVDs. And like uh, long-form movies? Yeah, 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 yeah. feature-length movies. Or, or feature-length for the, for porn is like four hours sometimes. Okay, really, oh, wow, all right. Really weird, yeah. And I went along and it was also, um, it's also a sex toy company. So, you know, I get there, at the, I walk into this place and I think, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> and they say, you know, just sit down and... Um, and you just sit in this, there's a wall of sex toys. And then, then you do an interview and, and you're supposed to act seriously. You can't, and you're supposed to sort of <laughs> not joke about, you know, which of course I couldn't do. I was just making jokes and, yeah. you know, um, and I got the job and then, and what my job was, it was re, what we did is we would, we would re-edit overseas titles for, so they would classify here in Australia. So we, in here in Australia, we have this very, um, strict classification process so certain things that you can get away with in europe and in america you can't get away with here so we would go in you would i don't know how much detail you want but you, there'd be screeners so so there were some people who worked there called screeners and they all they did was watch it and they kept a little spreadsheet but they would say things like you know um three minutes 45 to five minutes 30 uh forced fellatio 
And so, so they had to come up with all these creative formalized names for these things. And, and our job would be to go in and, and we would edit that stuff out and then we'd build the DVD menus and it was the strangest job. And, um, and it was a strange, you know, uh, it's funny because people specifically my male friend said, God, it must be a, that must be an amazing job. And it just, it wasn't the sense that it, you didn't have to do, they knew that it was a weird job. So your workload for the week was very relaxed. You, you didn't have to get a lot of titles done. Um, you'd have a lot of downtime, but it was a strange, it, it really did get you down because you started to realize, oh, you're, you're cut. You, you start to think, well, why is this stuff classified? And why, and, and I'm cutting it out so these people can make more money. It was, it was sort of, you know, a great job, but also a weird job, a sort of a soul destroying job as well. And, and I would like to say that I, you know, I quit because I, you know, morally i for whatever reason but i was actually i was actually fired and i was fired for the most the most ridiculous reason i met my now wife uh she was editing porn as well so she would she was sat at the next desk for me and <laughs> we, we started i love it we, yeah exactly when it, if ever at a dinner party and someone says how did how do you two meet you know how did you meet <laughs> well, it's always this long story and a lot of disclaimers we're not disgusting people but we did work in this place <laughs> um but we became very good friends and then started dating. And what happened in one of our one of our dates, I wanted to this is so stupid. The third Batman film, the third Christopher Nolan film, the Batman film came out, was coming out. And I, because I'm a bit of a nerd, I wanted to see it at midnight. And Summer, my now wife, said, That's ridiculous. Why don't we just see it tomorrow like a normal person? And we kind of had this debate. And I said, Well, what about it this? What about if we see it at midnight and then tomorrow? You sleep in and I'll come into work. And we had this old school punch in, punch out system. So you take your card and, you know, um, and I said, I'll punch your card in. So that so the bosses think you're there. It's really, you know, a terrible thing to do. It's time theft, really. Um, yeah. But a lot of people did it at the time. And I, I you know, I was, um, you know, I'm not a perfect person, you know. Um, so anyway, I did it. And then we got about a week later we got called into this big boardroom and we got fired because we'd abused the system we were time thieves and it was the most embarrassing sort of moment of my life because I thought oh my god I'm getting fired I'm an adult and I've done something naughty you know it's this naughty thing I've done I've broken the rules and now I'm getting fired from an adult film company it was the most ridiculous (laughs) thing um but it did it did actually lead me it, it, it sort of suddenly, you know, my wife, my, my now wife, my then girlfriend, were suddenly both fired, and it was a real crossroads moment. And it, it was not long after that I actually decided to, um, I enrolled at RMIT screenwriting, uh, and and that sort of kicked that kicked off my screenwriting. Or years later, that would sort of kick off my screenwriting career, you know, which helped with the book stuff. So it really did. Getting fired was it was a wonderful thing. It was a low but it led to good things. So that's my... Um... Oh, and I mean, most importantly, you met your wife there. Exactly, exactly. You know, if, uh, yeah. And, and, it's the and, most um, important and... job you've had, I think. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I'm glad. I'm, I like that positive spin. Yeah, no, I think that's a great story. And I was not expecting that when I asked you what you did before you were a writer. So <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Um, let's talk a little bit about... Uh, the Nowhere Child, which was your first book, what I've read up about it was that it was one of Australia's best-selling debut novels of all time. So, yeah. 
I mean, it won it won an award, right? It was the yeah. 2017 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Unpublished Manuscript. Exactly. Yeah. So so it, it won that, and then um, then it, then for me, it was this sort of writer's dream because then uh, there was a there was a bidding war, and all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, the 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 advances people were offering was, you know, for me, absolutely life changing. You know, so yeah. so it was this it was this really incredible, incredible, uh, wonderful thing that my and my life did a complete one eighty. But then there was this pressure, you know, because I thought, God, all the, this is so much money, and all these people have uh, have put so much time and energy into this, and it was my first thing that I'd put out into the world, really, and it was terrifying, and I really. I, I got anxious about um, the idea of it failing and the idea of these people taking a chance on me and, and, and regretting it, you know? So, mm. but luckily it, it, you know, it just, yeah, it was one of the best selling, you know, debuts ever. It just sold like crazy. And I think a big part of that was, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm proud of it and, and I think it's a good book, but, but so much of it is, finding the right publisher and you know you, you and I have the same publisher a firm which is you know when the when the when Noah Child um it actually the original title was Decay Theory uh so when Decay Theory was um was you know up for the bidding war there were two the two kind of top you know top offers were pretty comparable money wise but um and I hadn't had context and so my I, I had screenwriting agents at that point so they were doing all the negotiating and I said and and one of the offers was from a firm who I went with, and one of them was from uh, you know a, a pretty big uh, publishing company. And my initial instinct was to go with the, the big guys, you know. And I, and I said to my agents, "What what should I do?" And they said, "Go with the firm. You know, they're they're a smaller company, but they talked with such passion about it. And and I'm sure that's been your experience as well. And 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 thank God I did because I really think that was a huge part of why it sold. You know, I think that um, had I gone into a bigger publisher you know, I may have been lost in the machine a little bit. And, and I really, with them, I always felt that I always felt that passion and they, and they just got out there and sold the hell out of it. And, and, you know, they, they got my face everywhere and, and they really focused on the publicity. So I think I really give a lot of the credit uh, to them. Well, I have to say they, they, I mean, you've got three books with them now. They talk mm. about you so passionately. It's really, oh, good. it's really quite beautiful. I want to talk about the award though, because I think it obviously played a big part in the bidding war, right? What, what yeah. was your impetus to um, submit for the award? Was it something you'd always wanted to do or? No, I had a really very naive uh, uh, idea about writing competitions. I, I thought, I kind of envisioned there just being thousands of entries and, you know, these kind of um, jaded judges who read one page yeah. and then I, I could see my <laughs> stuff getting screwed up and sort of thrown over a shoulder and going through a little plastic basketball hoop, you know, into the into the trash. I, I, re I really had this vision. Um, and then I – so what I did, so I I just started getting tiny amount of work screenwriting-wise. So I had um, – I had something in development which let me, uh, you know, let, allow me to get a, 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 some screenwriting agents, you know, um, RGM I'm with. And, and I have these two agents in particular, Jen and Candace, who I work with. And I I wrote, just in secret, I wrote the, the you know, the, the draft of what would become the Nowhere Child, Decay Theory. And then I, when I'd finished it, I, I said, I sort of had no idea what to do. You know, I was Googling who to send it to and I had, had publishers in mind, but I hadn't sent anything off and I asked um, Candace, one of my agents, said, "Do you guys 
put books out. I know you're screenwriting agents, but what, you know, and she said, she said, yeah, we can do it. But she said, why don't you enter some competitions? Because if you get shortlisted uh, for a competition, then it, you know, it helps, um, you know, it's just an added sort of selling point. Uh, so I, so I just took her advice and it was, it was a really good exercise because, so I, yeah, I entered the VPLAs, which, which was pretty ambitious really, because, um, you know, Jane Harper had won before me with the dry and Graham Simpson with the Rosie project. So this big, you know, had a really, has a tradition of propping up these debut authors. It was very ambitious, but it was also a really good thing for me because I, you know, when I, when I said earlier that it took me so, it took me over 10 years to, to sort of break in a big part of that was obviously I had to learn the craft and I had to get good at it. But an even bigger problem for me has always been showing my work to people. I would write whole, The Nowhere Child was the fifth manuscript I'd started and the second I actually finished. And I just never showed anyone anything. And I would, I would finish things and just leave them on my desktop or I would write them. This is really weird, but I'd write it until the last chapter and then I'd just put it away. And I think I was really scared you know, now that I can reflect on it, I think I was really, really scared of, I think, you know, obviously scared of failure, which I think everyone is. But for me, it was more, I could, I could kind of fantasize about being a published author if I never showed anyone my work, you know, and if I showed someone my work and got rejected, then it, it this is, this is crazy. It doesn't actually work that this way, but it, I saw it as it, it would destroy the fantasy, you know, it's yeah. really kind of really complex and silly. So, so the idea of sending it off to this writing competition that I still thought would be thousands and thousands of entries and it, I'd never hear from them. It was a good exercise in just starting to show people my work and getting things out there. So it was, it was really healthy for that. And then, um, but then, yeah, luckily I, you know, the shortlist, I was, um, I was in London at when the shortlist was announced, which makes me sound like a very cool and well-traveled person, but it was, <laughs> it was like the one three week period I'd left the country in years, you know? Yeah. Um, so I didn't get the phone call and I, I knew that the shortlist was going to be announced this day, but I really didn't think I would be on it. And I, I remember checking it thinking, oh, I better, you know, I would have, I would have heard, they would have sent me an email. So I know it's not going to be me, but I want to check and see if I recognize any names and, and, you know, I can figure out who to be jealous of, you know? And then I saw my name on it and I was like, oh my God, you know, and I, and I, and I was like, is, is this right? And then I emailed them and said, hey, just, just in case you've been trying to call, I'm out of the country. The <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are you sure? Uh, and then, and then we sort of worked it all out. And then all of a sudden, I mean, it was remarkable because all of these publishers who I had fantasized about, you know, I I'd sort of brainstormed, how do I get my work in front of them? All of a sudden they were asking me, asking me for it. And, and yeah, it really happened very quickly within Within days, there was a bidding. There was a bidding war. Was that bidding war from just being shortlisted, or was that once you'd been announced as the winner? It was just a shortlist. So wow. straight after being short, yeah. So so way the way the VPLAs work, and I'm sure there's other competitions like that. Is that as soon as that shortlist is announced, publishers get on it because they want you know they 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 know that it's got to be of a certain level, but also just having a VPLA shortlist helps with you know selling it, and and I think readers recognise it now and things like that. I, I was told uh, that I'd won because I, they, they said, hey, do you want to come, try to get back? And I couldn't get back, um, but they had been told. So I knew that, but it, it hadn't been announced yet. But before it was even announced, I had a publishing deal. And, and it doesn't always work like that. A lot a lot of other authors are, um, you know, I think the way Jane Harper did it was she waited a long time and they went and had meetings at every single, at all the publishers. And 
and was really um, much more thoughtful about it. But I, I really trust my agents and I trust my gut. And so it was all, it was all sort of done before I got back, you know, from London. And I remember my wife, some, she wasn't with me. I remember it was Skype then, you know, the Zoom, we didn't know about Zoom then. I remember telling her, I, I'd spoken to her the day before, but the, the financial stuff had gone up so much in 24 hours. And I said, so it's gone up a little bit. It's in a, And I told her, and we're both just crying, you know, because yeah. it was it was crazy. And my memory of that now is um, is through the Skype screen. You know, I can, that's how I picture yeah. it. Uh, but yeah, anyway, yes. So that's the very, very long answer no. to what should have been a simple, it was a simple I question. Love yes. long answers. I have some follow-up <laughs> questions. Mm. Um, the so the unpublished manuscript that gets submitted in the competition mm-hmm. is eventually chosen as the winner. You sign your book deal with a firm. How yep. much of that manuscript changes during the editing process, or or do they pretty much keep it as is? There was um, there was quite a few changes. Uh, not not major changes. Structurally, it stayed the same. Um, there was a lot of uh, a lot of smaller stuff and a lot of uh, I wish I could give an example, but it would be a spoiler, so I'll be very vague. But certain things like um, my editor Ruby, she came in and she would make suggestions, and some of them were small. You know, one of them was, and I apologise for being so vague about this, but one of them was a small scene toward the end of the book that that explained a character's motivation so perfectly, and that was never there in the original. That was all her idea, and there was there was a long ridiculous red herring where um you know in, in the book i don't think this is a spoiler but there's a character in the book who is um spotted out in the forest it's a pretty obvious red herring and he's still in it but there was so much more about him you know there was this bizarre scene where there was this there was this person who was kayaking telling her story and and he was this guy was naked and he started swimming toward her really really weird wild stuff and all of that they just politely said hey this is ridiculous let's cut this uh and, <laughs> and that's and, why and, you and need it, an editing team right uh, absolutely i've never written a thriller but that's what i love to read and we're going to talk mm. a little bit more about your screenwriting as well in a minute because this is kind of a genre that that spans out of your novels to to your screenwriting efforts as well yeah. but yeah. when when you are writing a, a thriller novel is the twist the first thing that comes to you because all your books have a great twist in them is the twist yeah. where you start or is the twist something you try and sort of invent to make the book a little bit more exciting or how, how does it work well my, my process so far has been I I plan I, I write a, a really solid plan that I think is brilliant and then I start writing and I get about halfway through and I start to realize you kind of get to know your characters a bit better and you start to realize, oh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do these things that I want them to do, you know? So, so then about halfway, I usually pivot and I, I usually follow the characters and eventually, so, so far the way it's worked with, with Noah Child, I had a completely different twist in mind, but I got halfway through and I realized this, this character who I sort of wanted to be the, the kidnapper, it just didn't, it, it just didn't feel right. It felt right in the planning process, but it just didn't feel right when I got to know them. And then I sort of figured out who it was. And then my job was to go back and make it seem like I had planned that all along, which was, yeah. which, you know, was a long process. And with the Nowhere Child, it was, it was fine because I had a million years to write it and I had no audience, no, you know, probably it'll never get published. I'll take all the time. And so I, so there was a lot of going back and forth. Um, with the wife and the widow and wild place, I had deadlines and I had an audience 
So what happened in both of those instances was I came up with a plan that I thought was great, wrote it and realized it wasn't great. And then my asked my wife to read it and she came up with all the answers basically. And and then I went back and made it seem like I intended that. So with the with the wife and the widow, there was there's a huge twist in that. And I knew what sort of twist I wanted it to be, but I had no idea how to actually achieve that. Um and I, I was stuck on it for for weeks and I I missed a deadline and, and I called my publisher on the ledge, you know, he had to talk me in from the ledge and um and then and I sort of then finally discussed the problem, you know, the, the, the idea with some and it was, you know, 30 seconds later and she had the answer and I was like, yeah. oh my God. And then with Wild Place, again, it was a completely different ending and I I, I wrote it from start to finish though and I knew I knew the ending didn't work, but I didn't have the luxury of time you know I didn't have the luxury of going back and waiting so I I just wrote it so when I was writing the last sort of third I knew it was a placeholder which is a difficult thing for a writer but sometimes I'm learning more and more getting that first draft out that's the hardest part that's that's the purge you know that's the painful part and then everything else is really fun after that because you just get to make it better and I gave it to again I gave it to someone said look I know the ending's not working can you tell me what to do and and she did she read that she read the whole thing and she had these thoughtful ideas but really more so than the wife and the widow came up with the twist in a huge way and I was like oh my god that's perfect and then so 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 I guess my process is plan realize that plan's bad and then get my wife give it to summer (laughs) yeah exactly I love it I was gonna say if I ever got divorced it's she she can take me for everything really it's gonna be it's gonna be ugly (laughs) there goes your career as well no I'm sure sure you'd be fine I I just always think you know when I when I read a book and the twist is so good and I never saw it coming even though I'm always looking for it the whole time you know as the author who knows what it is from the beginning it's really hard to be sort of uh, subjective about it and think is this, am I giving enough clues without giving too many clues? You know, it's, it's really hard to kind of get perspective on that as the person who's yeah. writing it. Yeah. It's a really tricky balance because it's, it's a cheat if it comes out of nowhere that, you know, the best twists are, Oh, why didn't I guess that? Why didn't yeah. I know that? You know, they're the best twists and that they're the sort I like. And, and usually the way it goes is, um, you know, I will layer in more clues as it goes. So, um, I think what they did with the Nowhere Child was they sent the first hundred pages out to everyone in the office, and they said, get, "Try to guess what happens." And the, whoever's the closest got a prize or something. Um, and that was a really good way of gauging how much you know, because you want I kind of want one in a hundred people to to get it, you know, yeah. because I because I you kind of want that. Um, and then and so it's about, but it, yeah, it's about that. As you say, you can't put in too many clues. You you've got to put in some clues. With the wife and the widow, my American publisher hadn't. I hadn't told her anything about it. But I just sent it to her. I didn't tell her about the twist. I just sent it to her cold, and she she said the twist. You know that she didn't see the twist coming, and she said, you know, no one's going to see it, so you can afford to to put layer in extra clues. And I did. I put in when you if you read Wife and the Widow a second time, knowing the twist, it's it's super obvious. But mm. but it's that it's just that playing with um, readers' expectations. And the, the Nowhere Child's the same. It's sort of you know certain things readers take for granted. And knowing that and then subverting that is the fun, is the sort of the fun part, I guess. Well, yeah, Yeah. because there's nothing worse than getting to the twist in a book or like a crime series that you're watching 
and they've introduced a new character or there was just something that you could have oh, never known. Yeah. It's so infuriating because you're like, I, I hate get it. to play along. Yeah, you need yeah. – I'm fine not getting the tw- – I mean, I, when I'm watching stuff, I don't want to see the twist coming, but I want to be given all the tools and all the puzzle pieces to figure it out. Yeah. And when you don't, it's just so – it's yeah, it's infuriating. It's like no, that's not fair. It's not fair. Let's talk about Wild Place. Um, mm. How how would you describe it to people that haven't read it without spoiling anything? <laughs> it's a. I'm getting better at that. Okay, it's good. it's a. Um, it's, so it's a thriller set in the 1980s, set in 1989, in the days between the, that weird time between Christmas and New Year's, which I've always mm. been fascinated about because it's this weird nothing time. Yeah. Um, and so it's set in, the, in a, a small Australian suburb uh, on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria, which is where I'm living right now. Uh, and it's about a, a, a girl who goes missing and a local guy, her teacher, sort of thinks he figures out, he's figured out what happens to her. Um, and he goes to the police and they don't really believe him. So he takes matters into his own hands uh, with the help of the missing girl's dad, who's got his own issues, and the local neighbourhood watch group. Uh, but what's really fun about it, I think, is that it's that during Satanic Panic, which for anyone who doesn't mm. know, Satanic Panic was this wave of mass hysteria that that swept the whole world, America in particular, but uh, and the UK, but here as well. And it was this amazing period in the 80s and early 90s when uh, people were suddenly really scared of Satanic cults and they thought their kids were getting brainwashed uh, you know, via heavy metal records. And, and it was this really, it was such an interesting time because when I think about the 80s, I was a kid in the 80s. And when I think about that, I think on one hand, you had all this freedom as a kid. There were no mobile phones and you could you could just kind of go and stay out as long as you were back before it got dark. But then on the other hand, there was stranger danger and, you know, neighborhood watch and all of these other things emerging. So there was this really kind of interesting tension there. And and I've known I've wanted to write about Satanic Panic for a long time. Um, it just seemed so silly to me. It seemed really, you know, it, it seemed I didn't have an angle, I didn't have an in. But then lately, as everyone knows, uh, you know, there's QAnon and there's all these conspiracy theories about COVID. And suddenly all these people in my life, not not just crackpots that, you know, these faceless people, all these people in my life were were buying into these um, conspiracy theories and and I, I sort of started to take notice and think what is it that makes your standards of evidence drop you know what what, what is it that drives that um, that kind of need to to blame someone and explain things and and feel like you know but other people don't and I, and I think it's you know I started to try to empathize with these people because they were in my life but I think it I think it's outrage and fear and things like that but all of a sudden I it clicked into place where I thought oh this is just an evolution of satanic panic you know all, all these these wild ideas with with no evidence or or you know the best conspiracy conspiracy theories have um you know when I say best I'm the most successful um yeah. have you know have these two or three facts real facts that you can look at but this, this sort of string, this narrative is strung together. It's really compelling that narrative that you kind of want to believe because it's so cool and fun to believe it. So anyway, I had this sudden realisation, oh, this is Satanic Panic. And then I thought, but writing about Satanic Panic, I'd kind of explore what we're going through now because I think everyone has a story about an aunt or a friend 
who shared some video on Facebook and then you get into an argument about it and neither of you are listening to each other. You're just yelling at each other. Um, so yeah, I really wanted to kind of explore that. So that's also explored uh, in the book. That was a long, a long pit. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I mean, I really resonated with this because when I was growing up, I also grew up in the 80s. My eldest brother was very much into heavy metal music. Yep. And a lot of the narratives running at that time was that there was satanic, uh, you know, meaning and satanic verses within within the lyrics of heavy metal music that we weren't that we weren't privy to, you know. Exactly. And we was yeah. And I remember, I mean, even though he was my brother and I knew him so well, I remember being scared, you know, of him and what was happening in that bedroom. <laughs> I love I love hearing that because that's. I mean, yeah, there's the character of Sean in the book. Who is that? Who is this yeah. metalhead who, who, who is just in his room doing his thing? Sean does nothing wrong. Yeah. Exactly. Just being yeah, Sean. But, exactly. And, and, you know, that, that sort of, um, that witch hunt kind of element of, of it, I, I think was so, it, it was, it was everywhere back then. And there were real world consequences, you know, so people like your, bro- you know, you're describing your brother, um, I don't know if you know about the West Memphis Three, but it was these three mm-hmm. teenagers who in the 90s, they got charged and sentenced to murdering these kids. It's a really interesting, there's documentaries about it. It's really interesting for anyone, anyone who's interested, go and research because there was a false confession and all of this stuff. But one of the reasons they were picked up in the first place was because they were into heavy metal music and they were into dark stuff. And 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 it has these real world consequences that... Um, I don't know what starts as this sort of silly paranoia, this worried about satanic cults, really affects. But these these kids spent, I think, twenty or thirty years in prison. You know, before they were finally released, because the evidence there's there's no evidence. So yeah, it has these really real world consequences, which I found kind of terrifying. There's another case of this is a really weird case in let's see, early eighties in California. I think it's off the top of my head. I think it's Manhattan Beach, but you know someone else will correct you know if that's not right i'm sorry uh and it, there was a preschool and there was a kid who had you know he was having trouble he's having a difficult bowel movement right a preschool age kid so his mum accused the the guy who ran the pre her, the preschool of abuse and then they sent so the police sent out a form letter uh, that said, "Hey, is your kid has your kid been abused?" Which is sort of crazy because it's inviting you know these stories to be invented. And then what happened is they they encouraged parents to interview their kids, and because of satanic panic, they they asked these leading questions. So hundreds of claims were made by these kids, which were you know really sad stuff, like they were abused and and they were abused sexually. But then. They were taken in a hot air balloon. They were flushed down a toilet that went, led to a secret room. Chuck Norris was one of the abusers. All of these crazy claims happened. And you think, well, that's nuts. Surely that didn't go anywhere. But then there was a trial. There were two trials, actually. And, you know, seven people were charged. And, and eventually they all got off. But the, the main guy who was abused in the beginning spent something like 
five years in prison while they were doing while they were all while they were going through the motion. So it's this really crazy real world stuff, and and that's what I'm sort of <laughs> sort of I love hearing about you and your brother because yeah, he was your brother, but still you were influenced by that kind of that fear and paranoia. And yeah, I think that's, which is I kind of wish Sean had a, had a sister now. Yeah, <laughs> but we sort of, we, I mean, he had, he had his mother, right? Mm, exactly. Who was on his side, but was also just a bit like, am I not saying something? Is this something I should be worried about? Yeah, exactly. A- a- am I, am I a good mother? Am I a bad mother? Is, is, has he fallen victim to this, to this, to Satanism? And, and I mean, Sean has done anything. Um, wild place itself mm. is also this idea of, the unknown and what's hidden in the shadows and what's going on, you know, amongst the trees. Was was there a wild place for you that you based that on? Yeah. So so wild place, um, in the book, it's most of the action takes place on one street, Keel Street, and it backs on to this um, community forest, which is, you know, this, this thick kind of wild forest that is sort of hemmed in by the community. So it's, it's this patch of, of, of wildland of, of bushland in the middle of suburbia you know and it's and it's hemmed in so in the book it's um all the fences on keel street back onto wild place so there's a lot of action in wild place and that was based on a couple of things one my my mother-in-law lives in mount eliza and they have little places like this um where uh, you know th- they have a name but the, the nickname for it is the secret passage you know so you'll it's a secret passage between houses between neighborhoods that kind of opens up and it's this green, these little kind of beautiful little patches of wild land. Um, and so I sort of based it on that. But also when I was a kid growing up in uh, in suburbia, at the end of our street, right on the corner, there was a huge vacant lot. And most of that was covered by this really thick patch of, you know, of, of just trees. And it was nowhere as big as Wild Place but it was this, it just, had, there were the urban legends about it. And there was this really creepy place that you would, you would walk through it was sort of a tunnel of trees. And there was a little bridge to walk across that someone had made. And it was this really kind of scary place. You know, my, my brother, older brother, Jamie told me that a, a killer clown lived there and it was all really, so it was this kind of scary, this place of legend, but also this very interesting, I don't know, right in suburbia. It was, just, it, it was sort of like, it felt like something holding on. You know, it was, and it would, and it felt like it would get smaller and smaller. And of course, nowadays, you know, years ago it was removed and now it's houses there, you know, every now and then I'll drive back there, which is depressing. See, I really wanted that idea and that kind of, that setting for, for Wild Place. The, the original title of the book was Neighbourhood Watch, which is a pretty uninspired uh, title. But then because the locals in the book named this community forest Wild Place, it just seemed like a no brainer. Um, but it also... It, it kind of represents this, there's this idea of suburbia, which is, it, it's this dreamlike, it, it looks, it looks really nice. And it's got this really nice aesthetic and it looks really peaceful and safe and boring. And, and it sort of is to an extent, but there's this, you know, humans, anywhere humans occupy, there's going to be this kind of dark seedy, you know, there's going to be affairs going on and all of that sort of stuff. So that's, I guess, I hate saying this word because it sounds so pretentious, but I guess symbolically it kind of, it you know it sort of symbolizes that stuff i want to talk to you about your screenwriting because mm. you've had quite a bit of success in the last few years i mean perhaps before mm. that as well but most notably i think that people will recognize is um clickbait on netflix tell me tell me about that yeah well strangely that the seed of that you know we we're talking about writing competitions before 
the seat of that was actually a writing competition as well. So I think it was 2014, 2015, so a long, long time ago, I entered a, a screenwriting competition and the the prize was to go and meet, uh, have a meeting at Matchbox Pictures, which is a, you know, really, they're a great Australian production company. And I won, which I was lucky enough to win. And then I went along to this meeting and I was very nervous and sweaty and I just was really shy and weird during the meeting. And I walked away thinking, well, that's that opportunity gone, you know. Yeah. Uh, but then anyway, anyway, they ended up optioning um, with Tony Ayres, who I would go on to co-create Netflix, uh, co-create Clickbait with. They He read the script that I'd won this competition for and he really liked it and they optioned it. And it kind of didn't go anywhere, but in a strange way, it sort of it evolved uh, into what clickbait ended up becoming, which is really weird because it was set in 1981, and the the concept was um, the concept that was every episode would take place a year later. It was called One Year Later, so it was this long missing persons case. And clickbait is is all about social media, and and it's really really about. Mm the problems we're facing today so it was a long development process i don't even consider it the same concept at all that i that i won this competition for it's so different that i i don't think it's the same but it was the seed um so yeah for me that was i mean that was just incredibly good luck you know winning this competition and and getting in with tony tony Ayres, who is as well as being a genius he is responsible for all the best you know he co-created the the slap um and you know so really really great stuff um but then we 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 developed so we developed it and we wrote the pilot and it just got up and down so it um it originally it had some traction in the UK which is what I was in London for then it fell over and we thought it'll never go anywhere and then Tony was going to the states and he said why don't we just pitch it in America and we'll we'll quickly rewrite the bible when you pitch a tv show you write what's called a bible which is kind of the themes and where the show would go and the characters and he said let's rewrite this for a US audience, which really we we spent so little time doing, we basically changed the spelling. You know, search and replace spelling. That was <laughs> yeah. it. Um, and then, and then he and then he pitched it in uh, in the states, and it was this this thing where it had been pitched in the UK, and while it had some traction, it actually there were a lot of no's, a lot of no's. And then when he pitched it in the states, it, it, like Noah Child, there was a bidding war, and there were there were um, one studio made an offer in the room. All of this really kind of crazy stuff. And then we went with Netflix because, I mean, they're Netflix. You know, I think we'd always envisioned it as this really propulsive cliffhanger-y show. But when you go with Netflix, because the whole season is dropped at once, it changes the way you write because you know people... Yeah, you know people aren't going to wait a week. We really just focused on making it, yeah, propulsive, and 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 that was our word. But all you know, propulsive, propulsive, propulsive. But also really drilled down in characters, and um, we did lots of research into social media and all this crazy stuff. And it's funny because then we shot the first six episodes, and then COVID happened, so we got shut down for six months, and then we shot the other two episodes. And again, this will sound pretentious, but my writing philosophy is to only write things that I would want to watch or or you know or read myself and that sort of I don't think that's pretentious I think it makes sense yeah thank you yeah look I wasn't fishing but thank you for saying um I I, um so so I I knew I had a sense that I would you know I I knew it was a show I would like but I really had no idea if anyone else would like it you know and 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 you never do and especially with the so with the book you you're working with it's a collaborative experience with your publishers and your editors and everything but it's 
it's a very different beast because it's yours. But with the show, you're part of this huge collaborative machine mm. and, and every department has amazing people working in it. And and so I kind of wasn't sure. I, yeah, I knew I liked it, but I, I had no idea if it was going to go well or not. And it just it just kind of went nuts. It, it was, um, you know, another positive with going with Netflix is that its audience is global. So, you know, often what would happen is you'd have a show get released here or the States and then next year it's released in another country. You know, it, it, it sort of works like that. But here Netflix goes global. So the audience that it reached was, uh, you, you know, I can't quite comprehend. And it went, um, it was number one in, in here in the US and New Zealand and, and um, globally, uh, globally number one for, uh, for a while. So it was just insane. So as as the creator and the screenwriter, how much say do you have the further down the line it goes? So like casting, direction, all that sort of stuff. Are you there for the whole process? Yes, I'm there for it, but in a tokenistic sort of way. You yeah, know, okay. I think that um, d- definitely I was in, you know, um, Tony and I created the characters and, and we plotted the whole, with a couple of other amazing writers, we plotted the whole show and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, t- Tony was the showrunner. So really it was the decisions made were his and, and I was across it all and everything, but I never thought I had a huge say. And I don't think at that stage I would have wanted one. You know, I, I, I was aware that everyone in, in film and TV, if you, if you work with really amazing people, people you trust, you're quite happy for them to make decisions because they're, they're the professionals. You know, I think, um, I think now, uh, you know, now that I've learned a lot during the, you know, I'd never, I'd been on a set, you know, maybe two or three times before. And, and now, now that I've had the experience of clickbait and I've learned a lot more, I feel more confident having a larger role in, you know, in future things. But yeah, no, you kind of, you're, you're, you're there for it all. I certainly never argued strongly against anything, but then again, there wasn't anything to argue against, you know, there wasn't, there were certain notes and everything that, that come from the studio that you, you wrestle with, but, there was never any, generally the vision of the, sh- of the show I'm really happy with and proud of. So I've got one, I've got one criticism and it's not for you. I found uh, Pia played by Zoe Kazan, her hair so distracting. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that before. I thought it was a really weird choice of hairdo. Yep. My, look, my, I'm, that's not the first I've heard of that. My wife uh, said the same thing. And it's funny because you get all this data from Netflix um, and I don't know how they gather it, but you get, you know, you you figure out why they watch a show and all of this sort of stuff. And one of the things about Pia was she was the most liked and the most hated character somehow. Yeah. So, and I do think, yeah, there, there, so she, she definitely, um, she definitely split people. And yeah, I, it's the same I've heard about the hair. I, I um, yeah, and again, that's one thing that I <laughs> look. I, I I don't think I would have wouldn't have known to say no to that haircut. No, of course not. <laughs> Of course not. But I know it's funny, but it is funny though, because things like that, they are, I mean, they sound trivial and and they are, but I do know that anything that takes you out of watching a show is Mm. bad. You you don't want to be thinking about the hair. You know, another, another thing that um, my wife pointed out, and I believe is a meme because I don't, I've gone off social media and I I don't look up any review because I, I, too fragile to look at bad stuff but i believe there's a meme about someone's made a clickbait meme about um there's a scene in episode four where uh emma goes to a shop and buys flowers but doesn't pay for them and so there's things like that 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 are so these they've got no they're they're not huge 
criticisms, but they take people out. They take yeah. people out of the show, you know, which I think is sort of, um, I mean, it's funny really, but yeah, no, I, well, look, I'll pass the, I'll pass your criticism on. And hopefully, I'll pass uh, the hair thing on. Yeah. I'm not the first person to say it. No. Um, <laughs> speaking of reviews, do you, are you a writer that goes and reads Goodreads? Like, is that something you torture yourself with? No, no, not anymore. I, I, when I, with Nowhere Child, I started, I was reading everyone and it was, and I was like, oh, these are, all, these are great. I'm going to do this yeah. all the time. And then I got my first negative one and it was brutal. And, and it was, and it's sort of hilarious now because it said, it said something like, um, I wish I had kept it actually. It said, I always, when I read a book, I always use, have a red pen there, read it, underline passages. He sounds like child. a fun time. Yeah. I say. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said, the Nowhere Child was the first book he's ever read where he didn't need his red pen. You know, so there was nothing in there. Um, oh. And I, and I, at the time, it, it hit me. I, I went, I, it, it, it hurt my heart. I went and had a shower and I was thinking, oh, it's all going to go south. All oh, my careers as well. People are going to hate it. And, and, it, and now I laugh at it. Uh, but um, but I, am, I am careful now to, I will sort of dip my toe in the reviews early on. So when you do a, you publish a book, they send out advanced copies to people. So before release, the, the the review started to trickle in and I generally check them and I will kind of read them as if I'm you know covering my eye with my hand and peeking through so I'll sort of <laughs> yeah. I'll just scan them and if they're good ones I might read them but generally I try not to now because I'm getting better at at, at taking it like it doesn't really affect me because it's so subjective but sometimes it just does and just sometimes it just messes with your self-esteem yeah. and, and recently I made the decision to go off social media and a big part of that was I really wanted to be in control of my the the content I'm reading sort of because I would be and you know an example I'd be on Instagram and I would you're in a good mood and then suddenly there's something dark there and then suddenly you're in a bad mood and and what would happen on Instagram this is this isn't isn't actually why I left it but people you know people tag you People tag you in bad reviews as well. If anyone, if anyone listening, write a bad review on Instagram, fine. Do not tag the author because it's horrible. But but what I found, and that was just a small part of it, but what I found was I I was suddenly feeling negative. And and look, a lot of that was to do with um you know uh, anti vaxxers and and stuff like that, where I'd kind of I'd, I'd kind of get angry and I'd have nowhere to direct that anger. And then you, it's kind of mm. in that negativity, is sort of contagious. You know, you you carry it with you. So I really wanted to stop. I really want to stop that. And I just really want to be in control of, you know, my moods, I suppose. And, it can, and every now and then something small can happen like that and derail you. So that's sort of why I don't read reviews just because. Um, oh, I, yeah, I, mean, the, the, I think the, that the, is a very healthy stance to have. Yeah. <laughs> and sure. I have, I have screeners in my life. You know, my dad, my dad will, be, if I called him now, he'll be able to tell me the percentage of four star reviews. You know, he, he reads them all. And, you know, and if there's particularly good ones, I had, I had the, the best review of my career actually recently in the Australian about wild place and that people sent me and I read that and you know that sort of stuff I read um but generally I try to the more experienced I get the, the thicker my skin gets but at the same time I'm I'm also getting better at just kind of you just got to look after yourself you know Absolutely. and I think that yeah social media is just really not really bad for that and it's the same with bad reviews really they're really similar in my head for some reason so yeah no generally I'll have a little peek, but generally no, generally no. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's a good idea. Before I let you go, I do want to talk about one other film accolade of yours, which I think mm. is quite important. I haven't seen it because 
I, I can't watch horror. I just can't do it. Fair I enough. can read thriller, but as <laughs> soon as we kind of get into the horror genre, I'm out. But yeah. I love Emily Mortimer. So there has oh, been amazing. times where I'm like, do I just put myself through it and not sleep for a few nights? But tell me, tell me about Relic. So yeah, I'm not offended at all that you haven't seen it because a lot of people, even people very close to me said, hey, congratulations, I can't watch it. I can't do horror. You know, so it's a real thing, which is fine because I have, I have hangups. I can't watch a, sh- a movie where the dog dies. I just won't. won't yeah. No. So, you know, there's a great website, doesthedogdie.com, oh. that you can go in and you type in the film. I do it all the time. And it tells you if animals are dead or if there's yeah. if there's drug use. And So anyway, so I totally get it. But yeah, A Relic is, it's a horror film about d- d- dementia, really. The, the monster is, it's sort of a manifestation of, dementia um i co-wrote it with natalie james who was the director and we were both we both had grandparents uh going through that and they're both they're deceased now sadly um but it it was we really just kind of drew on that experience and and you know we wanted to write a horror but we wanted it to be emotional and and kind of be about how we how we process how we process that and, and how we process it at at different times in our lives, you know, when I, when my nan had dementia, I would think not so much about how it affects me, but I would think, oh, is my mum going to go that way? You know, it's just all that sort of stuff, that intergenerational stuff. Yeah. So relics, relics about um, three generations of women, a, a grandma, a mum, and the daughter, and the grandma goes missing. So the, the so the, the mum and the daughter go to, you know, go to her house. She lives in this remote little creepy cabin in true horror style uh and she returns and she's just changed um and then to say anything else will be a spoiler but then it gets it it gets very very scary but then it has a very emotional uh i, I think cathartic ending it's extraordinarily bleak but i, I think it's sort of a nice <laughs> hopeful ending as well um and that was another one of those experiences where you know we were lucky to we found an australian publisher uh, australian producer uh, and they got um, a Nine Stories, which is Jake Gyllenhaal's company involved, oh, and then wow. um, Agbo, which is uh, you know the guys who make the Marvel movies. You know, so yeah. we got we've been, been really lucky to kind of partner with these incredible people, um, and that was a, that was a fantastic experience. And as you say, Emily Emily Mortimer is incredible. Uh, you know, she came out to do it. Robin Robin Nevin. Um, it, it's just this. It, yeah, it, it was a really a wonderful, wonderful experience. And of course, COVID meant that it didn't get a theatrical release, but it did. Mm. It's on Stan now, which is good. So people can, um, people can watch it. And it's also anything like that um, sort of helps in your career. There's not much I can say about this, but Natalie and I, are we've just written our first uh, studio, Hollywood studio film. It's called Apartment wow. 7A. Yeah, and so we're making that next year. I, I, all I can say it's for Paramount Pictures. All I can say is that it's a psychological thriller. I can give no other information, but um, but but that that came, that was a direct result of of Relic. You know, it, it was um, you know, people watched Relic, liked Relic, and you know, then then give you these upper, other opportunities. So it's yeah, so I, I have such fond memories. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, there'll be more more news about that. It's funny because with book stuff, you've got to be vague, but you kind of, you, you don't really, it's, it's not like these strong rules against it, but with film and TV, they're so secretive. Uh, yeah. You know, it was, you know like, yeah, we, we, I found that with clickbait. People would ask me about it before it was released and I, 
and I would just say, I'm so sorry. I can't say anything about it. I can't say anything. So it's, so yeah. Well, it's really interesting, actually, like even just in the book world, having to interview people about books that they've written and books that I've read, but you obviously don't want the reader to know too much about the book, but they need to know enough to want to read the book. It's like such a strange conversation to be having. Yeah. Well, you're very, you're, you're very good at it. I've got to say, oh, this has been, a, it's been a fun conversation. I think we've, um, you know, teased it enough without actually giving anything away, which is the, yeah. uh, which is the goal. <laughs> I want to ask you some rapid fire book questions. Now, right. most people find it hard to answer rapidly, but do your best. <laughs> yep, I'll do my best. I'll try not to think about it too much. What was your favourite book growing up? So it could have been as a child or a teenager. Yeah, when I was a kid, it was, it would have been an Enid Blyton book, but I'm probably Shadow the Sheepdog when I was a little kid. Okay, an Enid Blyton yeah. book. And then when I was a teenager, it was um, uh, probably maybe Catcher in the Rye. And then then as an older teen, uh, The Beach, which is this incredible thriller written in the, in the 90s by Alex Garland. Yeah. Uh, they made a bad movie out of it. but the, With the Leo. Book, I mean, with Leo. everyone's yeah. seen it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the movie had its strengths, but it, the movie, that, that, that cliche where the book is better than the movie, it never has been truer with The Beach. Yeah. If anyone's listening, just... Don't even think about it. Just go and buy it now. It's it's one of the still one of the best books ever written. I love it so much. Um, so yeah, that would have been my uh, that were my yeah, that were my big book. You know, I've got the beach, and I am sure I read. Where is it? I have it somewhere on the bookshelf, and I'm sure uh, I yeah. read it before the film came out. Yeah, but I don't remember it notably. So maybe maybe I didn't. I'm gonna reread it. it. Give it a reread, I think, or either maybe it's not the best book. Maybe you know, because I read, I read, I read it um, once a year. Usually, it's summertime. I read it because it's a real summary. It's a real summary book about a you know, it's about a a, a group of backpackers who go to a secret island, and mm. it's just great. This is so it's such a cozy read. Um, okay, but no, it's great. Yeah, give, give it another okay. try when, when the weather gets warm. What? Well, I live in Byron Bay, so the weather's always warm. Oh, God, um, it's perfect for Byron Bay. <laughs> What's the book that changed your life? Well, I, I know what changed my life in the creative sense. So so Stephen King's on writing. You know, he, he wrote, it's a sort of a, a how, to, how to write a book slash memoir. And I read that book. The, 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 like I said before, I'd written, the, the Noah Child was the fifth manuscript I'd tried, you know, I'd ri- tried to write. And the difference between my fourth and fifth was I read On Writing by Stephen King. And it, it's just an incredible book. There's a lot of stuff you already sort of know, but you need by being told it, you know, like being told you're accountable for your own writing and being told how many words to write a day and, and all this sort of stuff completely changed my life because I suddenly just thought, okay, I'm just going to follow these rules and see what happens. And, yeah. and, and, and the Noah child came out of that directly, wow. you know, so that, that really changed, um, that really changed my, my, my career. And also a book um, called Dark Places by Gillian Flynn. Which I read, I read that quite late. You know, I read that in my twenties or thirties or something. It must've been my thirties because it hasn't been out that long, but that was one of the things that prompted me to try to write thriller. You know, before that I kind of, I tried to write a comedy sort of book and I tried to write literary fiction and, and I read that and I just thought, why am I trying to write in genres that I don't, you know, th- th- I love the thriller genre. Why don't I just lean into it? And that, mm. and that changed my trajectory um, as well. And as far as life off the page, you know, I, I, um, I think oh, it's so hard because I, I, the reason it's difficult to do rapid fire is because I, I want to reserve the right to change my mind. Um, I know. Slaughter- 
<laughs> Slaughterhouse Five, um, Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut changed my life as well. Uh, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, uh, about a seagull. This book changed my life in some sense. So yeah, they're all of all of those, all of those. Okay, love it, love I'm it. Sure there's more all right. too. Do you, is there a book that you buy other people? Oh, these are such good questions. Um, well, I, I this is I don't this is a weird one. Yesterday, I bought a book for a friend of mine. I'm just surprising him with it. And it's actually, uh, it's called Mothman Prophecies by John Keel. And it's a sort of a book about this guy who explores paranormal stuff. So that's my yeah. most recent purchase for someone else. But that's because I know he's into it. But no, a book that I'll continuously buy over and over for someone is, um, God, that's a really, a really tricky one. Um, you know what? There's this book I've bought, and I don't know what this means. I've never, I'm only thinking about this now. There's a book called, survivor by chuck palanyak the first scene is a guy hijacks a plane lets everyone out uh you know takes off again 747 he even lets the pilot parachute out the pilot the pilot tells him okay how to you know tells him how to do it and he's flying to australia and he's going to crash into the outback and kill himself and the whole book is him telling his story to the black box and telling what led to that what led up to that and the story is absolutely wild you know he, he starts in a cult and, and it's just really great and it's a phenomenal book and Ch- chuck palanyak you know he he wrote um fight club and diary and ah. choke all these really great stuff yeah. yeah but survivor is super weird even within his body of work but that's something for again and again i've bought for um i bought for people i don't know why though that's i've never thought about that's a good question well, maybe because it's a surprising read. I mean, I always, yeah. I, I always think it's funny when someone buys you a book and it's a self-help book or you know a personal <laughs> yeah. development book, and you, I mean, it's hard not to be offended by it, you know. So yeah, it's I, right. <laughs> Do you think I need this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's going on here? Um, <laughs> what about favorite book you've read this year? It's a Don Winslow book, and it's called City on Fire. And this will be frustrating because it's actually not out yet. I don't think it comes out till next year. But I'd never read Don Winslow. He's an amazing crime writer. And I read that book in, you know, two days and it was phenomenal. And it's one of those things where I just went and started buying. I've read two more books since of his, The Force and um, uh, Power of the Dog. He's an incredibly well-researched writer. You know, it's it's a book, um, A City on Fire is about, uh, it won't appeal to everyone, but it's about, um, set in the 80s about the, uh, the mafia and it's but it's this really uh, well researched beautifully told uh, story that's definitely my favorite um, favorite of this year yeah and then one last question who who do you think has been the most influential author for you or your own writing i think it's a three-way tie between Gillian Flynn Stephen King and this will surprise people and Turuki Murakami who is my all-time probably my all-time favorite author even though my work is nothing like his it 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 really influences i really like those quiet thoughtful things and actually the nowhere child was me i started by the starting point i thought what if you know the 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 protagonist in the no world kim is very passive very much like a murakami character and i thought what if a character walked out of an, a murakami book into a stephen king book and that's sort of what the nowhere child was so yeah yeah that would be um that would be my three. I, I have a confession, and I say this confession every episode of the podcast, but I've never <laughs> read a Haruki Murakami book. Oh. Where do I start? What what book do you think I should start with? So I, I would 
I would start at and to dip your toe in uh, because he he writes things. He sometimes he writes you know magical realism stuff like that. I would start at either two places. Fans might disagree with it with me, but I would start with Norwegian Wood, which is a very real world, romantic, beautiful story. And then I'd also read Sputnik's Sweetheart, which is a very it's a really thin book, really quick to read. I don't think they're his best works but they they are a good introduction to his stuff because you know my wife Reese hadn't hadn't read anything and I started her heavy I gave her Killing Commendatore which is one of his most recent books it's about a foot wide I love it it's for Murakami fans it's 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 one of his best books I love it so much but I think it was a mistake to start her there so I think <laughs> yeah. yeah I think Norwegian Wood or or something something a quick easy read like Sputnik Sweetheart is a really quick you know, it's novella size, so you'll blow through it, and then it'll leave you Get wanting a taste. more. Yeah, yeah, I think I think beautiful. so. <laughs> awesome. Well, Christian, thank you so much for joining me on Talk Wordy to me. Thank you for having me. That's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on Wild Place. It really is. It's so captivating. I loved it. Ah, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the debut episode of Talk Wordy to Me. If you are enjoying this podcast, I would love you to leave me a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. It's a really great way to get new podcasts off the ground. And if you'd like to share it with your friends, the best way to do that is take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. You can tag me at Jordana Levine, and I would say tag Christian White, but as we learned, he's not on social media. So for now, perhaps tag his publisher at Affirm Press. I will be back in your ears on Friday with a mini episode of the podcast talking about my favorite thrillers with their all-time twists. Until then, I'm Jordana Levine and you've been listening to Talk Wordy to Me. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.